Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today we venture deep below the waves to Davy Jones's locker and to the inevitable reality of Anna's pirate accent. Yarr! <laughs> Ahoy! <laughs> oh. This week we're all about shipwrecks. We're going to talk about underwater archaeology and some of the most famous wrecks out there. And the yarns they can spin us about the people on board, life at the time the ship sailed, and where the ships came from, and where they might have been bound. But I want to share a cool fact first, because yes, I will be using that pirate voice here and there. I can't help it. I have a strong childhood link to pretend piracy and a very, very large fondness for all things swash and buckle. So that pirate accent is actually derived from the West Country of the UK. And it's an exaggerated version of an accent most associated with, ironically, farmers, landlubbers. And so for the link to piratical activities, we have to thank a man named Robert Newton, who was an actor in the 1940s and 50s. And Newton first used the accent while playing his most remembered role, that of Long John Silver in a 1950 adaptation of Treasure Island. So Newton was British and had grown up in Dorset, England, where he would have heard that West Country farmer accent. And so Long John Silver sounds like, arr, ooh, arr, I Jim lad, arr. <laughs> It's that. So like that. Ooh, R. R. <laughs> well, I didn't do it very enthusiastically. Jim Ladd, just like, R. Ooh, scupper me timbers. That's wrong. Um, but, you know, that, that classic, when you think of talk like a pirate day, that's mm-hmm. the accent, you know, the, the, the accent that's in the SpongeBob intro. Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, Captain. That that is derived from Robert Newton's portrayal of Long John Silver, and audiences loved it. So he continued to use it in his later pirate movies. He really kind of got pigeonholed, including uh, Blackbeard the Pirate and the popular series The Adventures of John Silver. So there we are, mateys. On to the archaeology, the or the yar archaeology. Yep. So, how does underwater archaeology even work? We're really only going to be able to skim the surface, as it were, on the methods here. But we've pulled some information from the NOAA, the Mm -hmm. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration um, here in the U.S., and the National Marine Protected Area Center. NIMPAC. NIMPAC. (laughs) NIMPAC. And they say, 
But underwater archaeology is the systematic documentation and recovery of information from submerged artifacts and underwater sites for the interpretation of past human cultures. Artifacts and sites, the locations of past human activity, possess information about human behavior in both the nature of the objects and in their exact distribution on or under the seafloor. Under the seafloor? No? I'm just thinking about under the seafloor. Well, they, the floor. sometimes they have to dig yeah. the floor. <laughs> the bottom. Uh, <laughs> Where did you think the shipwrecks were, Amber? Just on it. Not under it. I mean, sometimes things, sediment settles on the ocean floor just I, as it does. On I can't the, with this right now. Okay. <laughs> Keep going. This is too much. <laughs> Well, projects may be non-intrusive when no excavation or disturbance of the site is conducted, as Amber thought it always was, or intrusive, requiring careful excavation and selected recovery and conservation of material. Initially associated with historic shipwreck sites, it is increasingly clear that the methods and uses of underwater archaeology are equally applicable to a wide variety of resources, including aviation properties, submerged habitation sites, historic landings, and and anchorages, etc. Underwater archaeology also includes the interpretation of site and artifact data in order to generate new information on past human behavior. The roots of the academic field are relatively young, beginning only in the early 1960s. Underwater archaeology today is strongly influenced by anthropological and historical trends, reliant on associated multidisciplinary fields such as material cultural analysis, geography, and GIS, and oceanography. The majority of projects today involve diving, and these capabilities and inherent risks must be understood by the Marine Protected Areas Manager. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is from the Advisory Council of Underwater Archaeology. Aqua. <laughs> yeah, it's nice when it works out that way. <laughs> they, dot org. Aqua.org. The majority of underwater archaeologists specialize in the study of nautical archaeology. That makes it sound like mer people. <laughs> <laughs> what? Underwater archaarchaeologists. <laughs> just No, that's they're just archaeologists who work underwater. I know, but they, they don't seem have like fish tails. Are, are from the underwater. <laughs> like, I'm an underwater American. I'm a um, mer-archaeologist. <laughs> the study of the construction and operation of all types of prehistoric and historic watercraft. For these specialists, shipwrecks are the focus of research, many of which, but by no means all, may be found underwater. Other types of sites in the underwater archaeologist's domain include ancient land sites inundated after the last ice age, sinkholes or bogs where people placed offerings or buried their dead, cities and harbors now submerged by sea level change or earthquake, and dwelling agricultural and industrial sites along rivers, bays, and lakes. Underwater archaeologists extensively use historical records such as ships' plans, logs, and manifests, explorers' accounts, old maps, and legal, business, and tax records. They also study long-term geologic changes to locate submerged sites. So much like we talked about when we spoke to uh, Madeline von Beyer, um, it's this area where, yes, you have to have a generalized knowledge of how to do archaeology, but also all of this other specialized stuff comes in. And you have to, you know, be a certified diver. You have to know a very specific and special methodology. You have to have access to all of these, you know, 
these different records and ships manifests and things like that. So it's really... And I just have to have a moment of candor here to let everyone know that I am today years old when I learned that underwater archaeologists actually have to excavate. Yeah. So I thought they just like (laughs) picked it up. So you remember it's difficult in itself. (laughs) Like that's. (laughs) Yeah. So you remember um, we talked about just last week. We talked about how that there's that layer of Sahara dust that just kind of blows everywhere. Think about how much of that. It also in the blows ocean. over the ocean. Yes. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- so that and, and all other airborne sediment and things that die in the ocean and just like plants that die, it all sinks to the bottom and forms sediment. I think I thought it was all like the beginning of Titanic. <laughs> We're going to talk about the Titanic, so hold on to your butts. (laughs) Hey, you know, we're here to learn just as much as we're here to uh, to teach in podcasts. Also, I am, what is it? Bathophobic. Mm. I'm really, really afraid of of deep water. Yeah. Which is, that's not a phobia. I don't think that counts as a phobia. That is a rational fear. Exactly. Yeah. So you're you're bathy sponsible. Ew. <laughs> okay. Well, we're gonna move on to a series of case studies. Some just, of which I've learned about and still thought that they just picked it up. Oh buddy. Come on. <laughs> I work in deserts. <laughs> the case studies I have chosen here, I made an effort to choose a handful from different places in the world and different time periods. However, I will say that I I blatantly went ahead and picked some big names just so we could talk about them and um, use them as case studies to talk a little bit about methods. But also these are, you know, because these are the big the big names in shipwrecks, they're really well documented and there really um, is a way for us to talk about the materials from them and how what they can tell us about people's lives. Right. So I, I didn't pick you know, little obscure things as case studies, I I did hit some highlights. So I just, I do want to, it's sort of a disclaimer, just sort of a like, this is how we did this. Um, and so the first of these is the Ulubarun shipwreck, which um, for a long time, my sort of mental happy place was going and planning menus for an archaeologically themed cafe that I called Trenchers Cafe. Not the best name. Still workshopping that. But it had... (laughs) Because, you know, a trencher is like the medieval bread plate that you put your stuff on. Of course I didn't know that. Oh, okay. So in in medieval times, um, in in sort of a medieval feasting context, um, you'd have this sort of slab of dry, stale bread called a trencher, and you would use that as your plate, and you would put your stuff on that. And so all of the like meat juices and whatever would sort of seep into that. And then at the end of the meal, you could either eat that or often the trenchers were given to the poor as alms, right? So Trenchers Cafe, a little double entendre. Um, But in Trenchers Cafe, the menu items were themed after different archaeological sites. And so the Ulubarun sandwich was basically a tuna, like a Mediterranean tuna sandwich because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, underwater. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about, <laughs> enough about my restaurant plans. 
Let's talk about the Ulubaran shipwreck. In 1982, a Turkish sponge diver stumbled upon what he described as metal biscuits with ears. Oh. You'll note that he was a sponge diver and not an archaeologist. And incidentally, this info is from the Institute of Nautical Archaeology. Uh, and these metal biscuits were off of the Mediterranean coast of Turkey near Kash. The find proved to be an elite shipment from the late Bronze Age, providing precious archaeological evidence for the exotic and valuable gifts exchanged by kings, heads of state, or wealthy merchants. The Ulubaran shipwreck was excavated by the Institute of Nautical Archaeology over 11 seasons between 1984 and 1994, with more than 22,000 dives logged to depths in excess of 150 feet. The Ulubaran ship was transporting a bulk cargo of copper and tin ingots in the usual ratio of 10 to 1, 10 copper to 1 uh, tin, to produce those bronze. The, those were the, the beard biscuits. Yes. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, okay, I can see that. Because yeah. they were, they're shaped, they're these little flat slabs, but they're, they do have little flares on the end that, yeah. that sort of, okay. All right, sponge diver. I see you. <laughs> Other cargo. <laughs> so, hello. Hello. <laughs> Yasu. Uh, other cargo included pottery, used, unused, and also containing foodstuffs, and luxury items intended for a very specific and wealthy audience, such as carved ivory containers, jewelry of gold and semi-precious stones like carnelian and agate. Raw materials from distant lands included glass ingots, unworked elephant tusks, ostrich eggshells, and faience beads. Personal effects such as weapons and galley wares, balance weights, and musical instruments, including lutes with tortoiseshell sound boxes, suggest that the ship was operated by a Syro-Canaanite crew and carried several passengers from the Greek mainland. In addition to the precious cargo, which by which they mean the artifacts, not the people, many stone anchors and a tiny bit of the hull remained, both of which are equally important in the study of ancient shipbuilding and its development. The ship itself was built of Lebanese cedar, wood that was prized in antiquity, with the technique of pegged mortise and tenon joints, and possessed a proto-keel rather than a true keel. So a true keel is, a keel in general is a flat sort of blade that extends from the bottom of the boat and runs longitudinally longitudinally along the ship and it's meant to help keep the boat balanced so some boats will have a keel that you can raise and lower to help you get over shallow areas because if you know if you have a, a blade sticking down um, you can easily run aground so sometimes you can raise or lower it but it seems like this had sort of part of that but not a, a full keel Close study of the cargo and hull remains of the Uluburan wreck has provided a special glimpse into the Bronze Age, its material cultures, and aspects of construction, economic exchange, and transportation. In general, this degree of interconnection of the Mediterranean during this time could only have been achieved through the intense maritime activity that is exemplified by the ship that sank at Uluburun. So, yeah, there were goods from Africa. So those elephant tusks and ostrich eggshells would have come from Africa. The faience beads were probably Egyptian. That carnelian, we've talked about carnelian before, and that has a pretty unique origin point sort of come in from the, like Afghanistan. Yeah. So like centrally South Asia. Yeah. So this is indicative of this web of trade networks that really extended all over the ancient world. Well, and we know about, well, 
If we believe what we read, we know about this anyway from the Amarna letters. And so the Amarna letters were a a cache of of letters um, in cuneiform that were excavated in Amarna, which is a a one-time capital of of Egypt. Akhenaten's Um, capital. Yes, exactly. Look at me knowing stuff. Yeah, you know stuff. Um, And so this dates to the, the late Bronze Age, and it involves the... The matters of of conversation among the club of powers um, that they sort of referred to themselves, and so it's this like is the axis of evil <laughs> club eh, of powers. Depends on <laughs> depends on who you're talking about, um, and so you've got um, Egypt, obviously, um, in conversation with Mesopotamian kings, uh, with courts in in Cyprus, which was Alashia, which was what it was called Alashia by. It was an exonym. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got them talking to the the Hittites. So you have them all around the Mediterranean. And and so you have this Syro-Canaanite, so these Phoenician maritime-based traders or whatever. And so you have them saying like, oh, my brother, I need silver. I'm running out of silver. Send me some silver. And be like, oh, my brother, send me some of that good cedar you've got. And yeah, so it's, it's a, a like... They're very, um, very formal, like stylized letters Mm -hmm. that is so it's a it's it's been pitched as like early diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so whether or not they actually had a control over the economy um, remains to be seen or whether they were just sort of like peacocking. Um, (laughs) But seeing but finding things like the Uluburun ship um, give us this lens into what actually was happening and and actually trade connections in the bronze age were even further as if like the the mediterranean itself wasn't big enough Uh, once you once you move into southwest asia you start edging into what um greg Posell, uh one of my former professors coined the term middle asia interaction sphere catchy oh yeah Yeah, it's mice for short. Um, but the the Middle Asian interaction sphere that's, includes that's French for corn. <laughs> mice. It's plural for mouse. Uh, well, spelled <laughs> like that. So once you get into Mesopotamia, you start to also see what's happening on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula. So yeah. that's where you've got um, Southeastern Arabia. You've got the the um, Indus Valley civilizations. You've got the Bactrian Mag- uh, Margiana. So we'll have to talk about the BMAC at some point. But you've got all of these, um, these you know, capital C civilizations. Like you've got mm-hmm. all these like powerhouses of... Um, a lot of them have considerable military power. A lot of them have like very consolidated wealth where you have a, a system where everything's being poured into the royal estate or the temple. And then the economy sort of is parsed out from there. Mm-hmm. So you've got like a lot of wealth. Centralized. Government. Yeah, very centralized. And so what you end up having is a world that is much bigger than you might think if you just think about the past. Like if I'm one of the people like on the Uluburun, I might not be going so far. I might be going from the the like Canaanite. I might be going from like the Levantine coast 
to Egypt, or I might be going from Cyprus right. to Anatolia. But like the goods, but and the, the stuff, stuff and, the, and the knowledge yeah. and the technology, you have a world that is connected from China all the way over to Britain. And I think that's what a lot of people sort of miss when they think about the ancient world. And even in the context of, of shipwrecks like the Uluburun is that these civilizations didn't exist in a vacuum. They no, were not at all. They were talking with one another on a state level. They were exchanging goods. They were exchanging people. The The world has gotten a great deal bigger with the advent of, of the modern age and, you know, the industrial revolution, but not that much bigger. Yeah. And so this is... Um you know, you've got three continents that just on are, this one ship, yeah, at least, yeah, which is is really incredible and something that yeah makes studying this period um, very exciting and very fun because you find these little glimpses into, um, you know, if you have like the lives of objects and things, like you find these little bits of something where like maybe nobody on that ship had ever been to these places but well, they tough. were they were part of a network that yeah. was like very dense very broad and um made for a lot of incredible innovations in art yeah. and technology mm-hmm. and um all of this communication happened religion. It just happened a lot slower than it does now yeah, but it still happened. And mm-hmm. if we look yeah. at it through the lens of history, we see it condensed. And so we sort of see right. the cumulative effect of it. Right, which is which lends to thinking about these these um, polities in a vacuum. But really, you have to expand that view and, and think of people moving around all the time. Yeah. And things moving around all the time with those people. And things moving separately from groups of people. Right, just because you find something made of carnelian in a totally different place doesn't mean that someone from Afghanistan made their way over. It's just that stuff did. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, yeah. And so that's, you know, just a few centuries after this, we have the medieval period and this trade network is still just a few. in place. And well, okay. Several <laughs> millennia. A while. <laughs> takes a while. Anyway, I, what I was trying to say is these trade networks are still in place by the time you get to the medieval period which is a callback to our episode on on Kilwakisawani. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's following very similar uh, patterns of of trade. Mm-hmm. So, like by the time the Portuguese show up and are like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's how you that's Spanish. I don't. I think that one's Portuguese too. Is it okay? Good. I hope my boss doesn't know. listen to this. Sorry, I'm sorry, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> Um, by the time the Portuguese showed up, people had been trading and traveling and immigrating and, you know, having battles with and empiring these places for thousands of years. Yeah. And, Go figure. And so, like, European explorers didn't f- discover anything. Like, I cannot, nope. I cannot possibly understate, like, even the discovery bits they were all well discovered. <laughs> Speaking of discovery and rediscovery. Yeah. Next. Let's go just a few centuries after the Louvreon. Shut up. <laughs> Time isn't real. What what is this this is the 18th century? Yes. All right. So, we're moving from the 18th, well, the almost 
a little bit after the 18th century BCE to just a few centuries, a hop, skip and a jump to the 18th century CE. Um, Yeah, there's these are in no particular order. I didn't chronologically do these. I just just was like, oh, ships. I I I saw this was Queen Anne and I was like, don't know anything about this. (laughs) I can assure you. 1705 ish. All right. So and this is the Queen Anne's Revenge project. This is the most piratical of our installments. Is this the project whereby Queen Anne exacts her revenge? She's got a lace, right? She does have a lace. It's a wild carrot kind of situation. But we digress. Queen Anne's Revenge. (laughs) This comes from the Queen Anne's Revenge Project online. Corp. Car, car online. Yeah. Um, as archaeologists, conservators, and historians, the Queen Anne's Revenge Conservation Lab, an <laughs> underwater archaeology branch of the Office of State Archaeology. Okay. <laughs> Fit that on your patch, on your jacket. Is dedicated to uncovering the mysteries of the past. Join us as we explore day by day the origins of Blackbeard, his famous flagship, Queen Anne's Revenge. And his misadventures along the Carolina coast. Yep. It took a great deal of work by archaeologists and historians to determine that the wreck in Beaufort Inlet is is it Beaufort or is it No, it's it's is it, off of is it the Beaufort? coast of Carolina. So I is think it? it's Beaufort. Beaufort? Beaufort, Beaufort. Inlet. Sorry, Caroline Carolinians. Is the remains of Blackbeard's flagship. The key facts supporting that conclusion involve artifacts recovered from the wreck site, along with historical details gathered from maps and contemporary 18th century documents. The shipwreck location and historical accounts of Queen Anne's revenge sinking coincided with the wreck's <laughs> Her location. Revenge sinking. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. With the wreck's location near Boyford, North Carolina. Before the Queen Anne's Revenge was Blackbeard's flagship, it was a French slave ship called La Concorde. The agreement. The agreement. Um, Terrible agreement. Slavery is bad. (laughs) By examining a variety of primary and secondary French documents, researchers have been able to piece together a limited history of La Concorde. (laughs) And on the CAR project website... (laughs) And on the the QAR project website, they have a cool interactive map of some of the pieced together history of La Concorde. La Concorde! <laughs> Way. On November 21st, 1996, a search team from the private research firm Intersoul Incorporated, operating under a permit from the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, found a cluster of cannon and anchors on the seabed near historic Beaufort Inlet. Again, to all residents of both of the Carolinas, we're sorry. But also, this just kind of touches on it, but underwater archaeology also involves a whole lot of maritime law and <laughs> whose state property is it, whose country property yeah. is it. And so, like, we we don't, we barely touch on that in this episode, but yeah. it is something to consider. If you're interested in underwater archaeology, there's a whole lot of um, wiggly law stuff that that uh, is to be dealt with. Yeah. Um, several diagnostic artifacts were recovered from the site designated North Carolina Shipwreck Site 31CR314. <laughs> Just in and case you were wondering. <laughs> there's a vanity plate for you. Yeah. 
including a bronze bell dated 1705, a sounding weight. And would would in- you like to know what a sounding weight is for? Yes. A sounding weight is something that you attach to a, a line, like a rope, with knots at measured intervals. So you are sounding your depth. Okay. So you're figuring out how so it, deep the water is below you. You're plumbing it. Like yeah, it's, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Great. An English blunderbuss barrel. It's a gun. Uh, yes. I know that. One of those those really dumb guns that looks like a gramophone attached to (laughs) an explodey part. (laughs) A a lead cannon apron and two cannonballs. Going to talk about some other artifacts they found. Yes. In various groups. (laughs) Yes. Ah, and categories. Mm -hmm. Although underrepresented in the artifact assemblage, (laughs) several objects classified as personal effects have appeared on the site. A gold-plated silver spangle... Spangle. What's a spangle? Just like decorative, a decorative, um, you know, a a bit of of sparkle. It really is like something that you would attach to your clothing. Yeah, flare. Yep. Clay tobacco pipe fragment, brass straight pins, and gold dust. The wrestler? How do you find gold dust? How do you find gold dust underwater? (laughs) Yes, the wrestler. Are you thinking of Goldberg? Is there a wrestler? I know nothing about wrestling, but it pleases me that there's a gold dust. Are among the smallest artifacts found on the revenge. Mm -hmm. Clothing, jewelry, smoking pipes, items used in gaming and musical activities and currency for the crew. Officers and passengers constitute the artifacts recovered. The passengers. (laughs) Yeah, there were passengers on the uh, on the revenge. Just like. At one point. Commuting. Not. Longer distances, yes. <laughs> wow. They were at one time personal possessions of those aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge. Blackbeard was known to take valuable instruments from the ships he plundered, which is a very dry way of describing piracy. Well, that's the thing. Like he took sometimes when he attacked a ship, he just he took whatever they had. At one point, um the historical records indicate that he took what is it? Peas and oysters. Like that was the haul. Peas and oysters. He also possessed the necessary tools for transatlantic navigation. Which would explain why he ended up on the Carolina shore. <laughs> yeah. Medical instruments were required on any ship of the time, and Blackbeard acquired additional medical supplies when commandeering the medicine chest from the citizens of Charleston, South Carolina. Mm hmm. Yeah, And for a little bit more about that, you could listen to an episode of Dirt After Dark. Yeah. One of our, I think one of our very first mm-hmm. Dirt After Dark episodes, which mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. for uh, one of the Patreon tiers. Uh, not for kiddos. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. The tools and instruments found at the site reflect a wide range of activities that occurred aboard the Revenge. Some of those activities included carpentry, gunnery. <laughs> Medical treatment, navigation, sail making and rigging, sharpening, and surveying. Some artifacts recovered don't have a known function. I left that in because I was just like, yep. Sometimes you find something and you go, what's this oh. do? It's Spangle. So next on our list, inevitably, we have the Titanic. We'll just hop right in. Um, this first installment is from archive.archaeology.org, which is the archaeology magazine's archive. And then um, I have a piece from a Vassar College publication. So, so the Titanic notably sank 
1912. Yes. 73 years after the sinking, in the early morning of September 1st, 1985, Argo, an unmanned deep-sea vehicle, disturbed the darkness for the first time. I remember this from the documentary. Argo, carrying video cameras and sonar, was towed at the end of miles of coaxial cable by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, Huai, uh, in their ship Nor, Kanor. Argo sent back to the ship grainy real-time images from the deep, the first the world had seen of the Titanic since black and white photographs depicted it departing the Irish coast in 1912. The best-known maritime disaster of the past few centuries, the sinking of the Titanic is remembered for the failure of an engineering marvel equipped with technological advances that were, at the time, believed to render it practically unsinkable. The luxury liner took some 1,500 of its 2,200 passengers, from rich and prominent aristocrats to poor immigrants with it when it struck an iceberg and sank into waters two and a half miles deep. Sorry, Amber. The disaster has inspired countless songs, memorials, books, and films, notably one particular film, as well as laws to prevent other ships from going to sea without enough lifeboats and to compel nearby ships to respond to calls for help. Discovered by a joint U.S.-French expedition led by Jean-Louis Michel and Robert Ballard in 1985, the wreck of Titanic proved an irresistible lure for explorers, salvagers, and aficionados. Since 1986, more than 100 deep-sea dives to the wreck have been made, and some 5,500 artifacts have been recovered by a private company for public exhibition. So this is from the Vassar College publication, Surveying the Titanic. Quote, experts believe that the Titanic will not remain intact for much longer due to rust and bacteria, making it a priority. But there were many other complications besides the difficulty of being able to create a full survey. The Titanic lay in international waters, making it difficult to access legally, and other companies had collected artifacts from the Titanic and were putting these up for display or auction. Archaeologists argue that they may not have been properly recorded, and that the artifacts were taken selectively. Seemingly only the first-class items have been picked up, creating an impression that was not wholly representative. Furthermore, the removal of items caused concern that other items may have been moved from their original locations without any record of where and how they were found. So, like, that's as an archaeologist, that's what makes me go, no, no, no. The site also contains modern trash, including many of the weights the manned submarines need to drop in order to return to the surface, and the Titanic had already taken damage from submarines that had latched onto its rails in order to get closer. In a multi-agency expedition in 2010, with the work of two autonomous underwater vehicles and a remotely operated vehicle, archaeologists were able to take video and make a 3D rendering of the entire ship, as well as the area around the ship, in full detail, every artifact included. The complete rendering was a revolutionary step for underwater archaeology and allowed archaeologists to finally ask and answer important questions about the Titanic. Meaning, you know... Uh, the people on board, you know, the lives of the people on board and what yeah. happened and things like that is useless without context. And so this finally provides context. So um, we will provide links on the show notes to some of these resources, including some of those renderings um, of the entire ship. So you can have a browse around for yourself. Should we take a break? Yes. Let's take a brief ad break and then we will dip back under the water. Ooh. 
It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right, we're back. And this time we're hopping back to the first century BCE. Woohoo. I know. And we're going to talk about Antikythera. Yay! The site of the Antikythera wreck holds the remains of a Greek trading or cargo ship dating from the first century BCE. It's located on the east side of the Greek island of Antikythera, near Crete, at the crossroads of the Aegean and Mediterranean seas. In a recent episode, I referred to it as the Mediterranean Ocean, and I only realized <laughs> that when I listened to the episode later. Oh, and no. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Amber. We say a lot of words on this show. Yeah, sometimes we don't, like, And the, the words, words in for our ocean brain. and sea are the same in Acadian, so. Oh, that's your excuse. <laughs> my excuse was just going to be that sometimes my brain thinks I say one thing. And my mouth oh, yeah. does something Who else. Knows? Who knows what happened there? But I was just like, oh, my God. Sometimes you just say the wrong giraffe. <laughs> the wreck was discovered in the spring of 1900 CE by a group of <laughs> Greek sponge divers on the way on their way to Tunisia, who took shelter from a storm near the island and decided to look for sponges while they waited for calmer conditions. You know, That's, make make sponge while the sun shines. Wait. <laughs> yes. One of the divers discovered the wreck at depths reported between 40 and 50 meters. It's a long way to hold your breath. I'm assuming they were like if they're sponge divers, they're probably just free diving. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, God. Oh. It's OK. You're just not in the water. Use a, use a rag. <laughs> just. <laughs> oh, that's like first way me. I got it. I'm here now. I've arrived. In November of the same year, the captain of the sponge boat. SpongeBob SquarePants informed Greek officials about what they had found, and the Navy dispatched two ships to re support recovery efforts, which lasted until 1902. That excavation revealed a wealth of discoveries that are today housed in Greece's National Archaeological Museum in Athens. These include three life-size marble horses, just what? casually on a ship. Yep. Let's see what it sank. Uh, <laughs> jewelry, <laughs> coins. Ship glassware, and hundreds of works of art, including a seven-foot-tall colossus statue of Heracles. Which was presumably done in, in bronze or stone. So, like, that's yeah, a heavy ship. Sits I think, low I in think the water. that one is bronze. 
The the Heracles was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it the old one? Is it old Heracles? Heavily bearded, yes. What he's like sort of dad bod and he's yeah, got a beard. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 But like jacked dad bod. No, he's still yes. He's still Heracles. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you never lose that that muscle mass. Mm-mm. <laughs> More than 70 years later, uh childhood hero of Amber, Jacques Cousteau, was invited to explore the wreck. His team recovered hundreds more artifacts, plus the remains of four people. His television program, Diving for Roman Plunder, popularized the wreck for a new generation. I don't like that title, but I like Jacques Cousteau, so I'm conflicted. The most surprising discovery, however, was an unassuming lump of bronze. Well, with that kind of attitude... (laughs) recovered during the first excavation that was later found to be a complex set of interlocking gears capable of predicting the movement of the sun moon and several planets as well as the future no as well as the timing of solar and lunar eclipses years into the future the in in a sense predicting the future a little bit The Antikythera mechanism is believed to be an early computer used to plan important events, including religious rituals, the early Olympic Games, and agricultural activities. Mm -hmm. Despite the wealth and diversity of discoveries at Antikythera, the wreck site has remained largely unexplored, partly because of its location and the shape of the seafloor on which it rests, which I guess is bumpy. Yeah. Shelfy, really. Shelfy. Wow. Mm. The wreck is too deep for scuba divers, yet too shallow to be to use a human occupied submersible or a remotely operated vehicle, both which both require a large ship in deep open water for safety and maneuverability. The site is also near steep underwater cliffs, and the wreck lies at an angle that makes it hard for an autonomous wat- underwater vehicle to survey with sonar. So mm-hmm. I don't care for this distinction between remotely operated vehicles and autonomous underwater vehicles because that Why? makes it sound like they are like sea robots. That they're they like AI. Yeah. That well, they decide where they're going. No, they don't they don't have they are um, autonomous. <laughs> they're not autonomous no in gods, their decisions. No masters. <laughs> uh, they are not autonomous in their decisions, but they are autonomous in their movement. Remote operated vehicles, I believe, have to be tethered in some way to um, the, their controls. Right. Okay. So they are controlled and then there's a cable running. I think autonomous underwater vehicles are not cabled. That's my understanding. Could be wrong. Because much of the wreck is far too deep for conventional scuba diving equipment techniques, in the recent efforts to explore the site, divers have used rebreathers that extend a diver's time on the bottom and greatly reduce the need for decompression stops on the way back to the surface. This increases safety for divers and surface support personnel in an area known for sudden storms because divers can be recalled to the surface quickly if conditions if conditions degrade quickly. During a 2014 trip to survey the site, expedition members also deployed a pressurized exosuit. Yeah, that's like straight up Iron Man suit, like (laughs) that big, bulky, like, (laughs) which permits a single occupant to work on the seafloor while remaining at sea surface air pressure. Yeah, so they don't have to like depressurize on the way up. So the, the wreck is deep enough that divers who are down there need to come up slowly so that they don't experience the bends. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the suit removes that necessity. It's crazy. 
(laughs) advances in underwater survey technology from autonomous underwater vehicle control to photo mosaicing software are also expanding archaeologists' views of the wreck and nearby seafloor by allowing them to create high-resolution maps of the site. Analyses of these maps suggest that most of the artifacts recovered in the 1970s came from the stern and galley of the ship. The section identified as the ship's hold, which is where the Antikythera mechanism was found, remains largely unexplored Mm -hmm. and likely to contain additional significant artifacts. Also, several large boulders moved by the Greek Navy during the first excavation may actually be large statues. (laughs) Similar to the Colossus of Heracles featured in the National Museum of Archaeology. I mean, you laugh, but when things sit on the ocean floor for a long time, stuff grows on them and minerals concrete onto them. So they might look like boulders. I just like that they were like, we did you guys a solid. We moved those for you. You're welcome. Yeah. Boop. All right. So next we're zooming forward in time again. Not quite as far as the last time. We are in the 1500s. So the 16th century. C.E. Yep. And we're talking about the Mary Rose. The Mary Rose is a Carrick-type warship of the English Tudor Navy of King Henry VIII. So a Carrick is a large ocean-going ship, large enough to be stable in heavy seas and often, um, you know, fit for very long voyages and had three to four masts. So a big old warship. And it was in Henry VIII's Navy. The Mary Rose served for 33 years in several wars against France, Scotland, and Brittany. After being substantially rebuilt in 1536, she saw her last action on July 19, 1545. She led the attack on the galleys of a French invasion fleet, but sank in the Solent, the straits north of the Isle of Wight. The wreck of the Mary Rose was discovered in 1971 and was raised on October 11th, 1982 by the Mary Rose Trust in one of the most complex and expensive maritime salvage projects in history. The surviving section of the ship and thousands of recovered artifacts are of great value as a Tudor-era time capsule. So the Mary Rose sank during battle, and um, unfortunately, you know, these are these are shipwrecks and often, you know, people died along with the ship and um, the Mary Rose unfortunately took most of her crew with her. The only confirmed eyewitness account of the Mary Rose's sinking says that she had fired all of her guns on one side and was turning when she was caught in a strong gust of wind. Other accounts agree that she was turning, but there could be a number of reasons why she sank during this maneuver. So... This is this big, heavy ship. And it seems like from the descriptions I read, it was just sort of this perfect storm of bad timing. Like she fired all of her guns on one side. And so that momentum meant that the force was applied in the other direction and then Mm. also a gust of wind. And then also she was turning. So it seems like from this eyewitness account and other historical accounts, she just sort of heeled over into the water and capsized. (sighs) I know. The modern search for the Mary Rose was initiated by the South Sea branch of the British Sub-Aqua Club, which I love, in 1965 as part of a project to locate shipwrecks in the Solent. The project was under the leadership of historian, journalist, and amateur diver Alexander McKee. Another group led by Lieutenant Commander Alan Bax of the Royal Navy, sponsored by the Committee for Nautical Archaeology in London, also formed a search team. 
As one of the most ambitious and expensive projects in the history of maritime archaeology, the Mary Rose Project broke new ground within this field in the UK. Besides becoming one of the first wrecks to be protected under the new Protection of Wrecks Act, (laughs) which was enacted in 1973, the Protection of Wrecks Act, we protect wrecks! It also created several new precedents. It was the first time that a British privately funded project was able to apply modern scientific standards fully and without having to auction off part of the findings to finance its activities. Where previous previous projects often had to settle for just a partial recovery of fines, everything found in connection with the Mary Rose was recovered and recorded. The raising of the vessel made it possible to establish the first historic shipwreck museum in the UK to receive government accreditation and funding. The excavation of the Mary Rose wreck site proved that it was possible to achieve a level of exactness in underwater excavations comparable to those on dry land. Throughout the 1970s, the Mary Rose was meticulously surveyed, excavated, and recorded with the latest methods within the field of maritime archaeology. Working in an underwater environment meant that the principles of land-based archaeology did not always apply. Mechanical excavators, airlifts, and suction dredges were used in the process of locating the wreck, but as soon as it began to be uncovered in earnest, more delicate techniques were employed. So they had, like, basically a giant seafloor vacuum that in order to sort of uncover the bulk of the ship. But then once they had that exposed, they were just like, and now the toothbrushes. Uh, Many objects from the Mary Rose have been well-preserved in form and shape, but many were quite delicate, requiring careful handling. Artifacts of all sizes were supported with soft packing material, such as old plastic ice cream containers. And some of the arrows, arrows, this was a warship that used arrows that were, quote, soft like cream cheese, had to be brought up in special styrofoam containers. The airlifts that sucked up clay, sand, and dirt off-site or to the surface were still used, but with much greater precision. So they, like, changed the vacuum attachment oh to, like, gosh. the one that gets you into the corners. The little one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the under-the-fridge one. Uh, since, of course, that could potentially disrupt the site. The many layers of sediment that had accumulated on the site could be used to date artifacts in which they were found and had to be recorded properly. The various types of accretions and remnants of chemicals with artifacts were essential clues to objects that had long since broken down and disappeared and needed to be treated with considerable care. Over 26,000 artifacts and pieces of timber were raised along with the remains of about half the crew members. And Um, I believe the Mary Rose Museum has these, but the faces of some crew members have been reconstructed. So like through photos and through through sculpture. Right. So they it's it's really interesting and much more poignant because it puts human faces on these lives that were lost. Analysis of the crew's skeletons show many had suffered malnutrition and had evidence of rickets, scurvy, and other deficiency diseases. Crew members also developed arthritis through the stresses on their joints from heavy lifting and maritime life generally, and suffered numerous bone fractures. And here's just the one real bummer in all of this. I mean... 
There was also a dog aboard the Mary Rose, a ratter terrier named Hatch. Hatch. And his job, yeah, he's a good boy. His job would have been to catch rats aboard the ship to prevent them from destroying the food supplies. And oh, so sadly, he was he was a good boy and he was lost with the with the ship as well. Two fiddles, a bow, a stillsham or duquesne, three three-hole pipes, and a tabor drum with a drumstick were found throughout the wreck. These are all instruments, and these would have been used for the personal enjoyment of the crew and to provide a rhythm to work on the rigging and turning the capstans on the upper deck. The tabor drum is the earliest known example of its kind, and the drumstick is of a previously unknown design. There's someone out there who specifically studies drumstick design, and I love that. The Tabor pipes are considerably longer than any known example from the period. Their discovery proved that contemporary illustrations, previously viewed with some suspicion, were in fact accurate depictions of the instruments. So, like, there were pictures and someone was like, those are long. Turns out, that's real. Before the discovery of the Mary Rose Shalm, which was an early predecessor to the oboe, instrument historians had been puzzled by references to still shams or soft shams that were said to have a sound that was less shrill than earlier shams. So this one was like, boy, sound sure does carry over water. Let's make this one less <laughs> terrible. The still sham disappeared from the musical scene sometime in the 16th century, and the instrument found on the Mary Rose is the only surviving example, except for a reproduction that has been made and played. And everyone in the vicinity just went, ah! No, this is the still one. The still one is less shrill. The cabin located on the main deck underneath the stern castle, so towards the rear of the ship, is thought to have belonged to the barber surgeon. He was a trained professional in so much as you had those in the 16th century, who saw to the health and welfare of the crew and acted as the medical expert on board. The most important of these finds were found in an intact wooden chest, which contained over 60 objects relating to the barber surgeon's medical practice, the wooden handles of a complete set of surgical tools and several shaving razors, although none of the steel blades survived, a copper syringe for wound irrigation and treatment of gonorrhea, and even a skillfully crafted feeding bottle for feeding incapacitated patients. And there's tons more about the artifacts and the excavation of the Mary Rose. This is a project that's been going on for a really long time. So we'll have uh, a link to the show no- on the show notes to um, all of this stuff. So you can go investigate for yourselves. I think we should have a- another quick break and yeah. then we'll be back for what happens after a ship gets raised. Or what Amber thought underwater archaeology actually was. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. All right, so we found a ship. 
We raised a ship. Now what? Well, let's take it on home. I'm going to read to you from Conservation of Cultural Materials from Underwater Sites. It does what it says on the tin. And this is from Donnie Hamilton from the mm-hmm. Nautical Archaeology Program at Texas A&M University, which I may be a real dummy about nautical archaeology, but I do know that is the place that's the place to go if you don't want to be a dummy about it anymore. <laughs> Maybe we should take a trip. <laughs> so when artifacts are recovered from the sea, especially warm areas such as the Caribbean and the Mediterranean, they're commonly encrusted with thick layers of calcium carbonate, magnesium hydroxide, metal corrosion products, sand, clay, and various forms of marine life, such as shells, coral, barnacles, and plants. The term encrustation refers to the conglomerations that may contain one or more artifacts. God, what a nightmare. Yeah. Such conglomerations may range from the size of a single coin to masses weighing several thousand pounds containing uh. hundreds of individual objects made of many different materials. Uh. <laughs> it's really stressful. Yeah, just, just thinking about it is stressing me out. Generally speaking, all metal objects should be kept submerged in tap water with an inhibitor added to prevent further corrosion. You know, like an alkaline substance. Yeah. Yeah. Waterlogged wood is commonly conserved by a process that involves either removing the excess water by replacing it with a material that consolidates and confers mechanical strength to the wood, or the excess water is removed by a method that will prevent any shrinkage or distortion to the wood. The most commonly used of the many treatments for the conservation of waterlogged wood are polyethylene glycol, um, acetone or rosin, and sugar. Yeah, I learned that you basically um, incorporate a sucrose solution and it preserves the wood, which is that was so interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know if there are special cases when you would do that or if that's just one of the methods, but yeah, I didn't know. And various forms of dehydration and freeze drying are examples of, uh, of pulling the water out. Right. If you can. Yeah. You want to, but so if, if you, you want to, you, you keep if it you want to, like, you replace the water. If you want to consolidate and strengthen the wood, you dip it in some Starbucks classic syrup. <laughs> yep, that's <laughs> science. Um, if you and if you want to try to dry it out or remove you the turn water it into a, a fruit snack. Yep. Um, if the wood is from a marine environment, which means salt water. Yes. Okay. As opposed to riverine or lacustrine. Lacustrine. Wow. Um, if the wood is from a marine environment, the water bulking the cells is full of soluble salts. Yep. Prior to any, <laughs> prior to any of the conservation treatments described below, it's necessary to take the wood through a number of freshwater baths to remove the bulk of the salts. Yeah. So um, this is very much excerpted from this article because he goes into a great detail. So, um, I was involved in a project that involved freshwater baths to remove salts from um, something that was pulled from, you know, deserts. So yeah, desert environment. I, say, I thought you worked in deserts. Yeah. Desert environments, like if with like irrigation salty. and things, you end up with hypersalination. Yeah. And, like and min- so, mineral salts from, yeah. from the, the and, um, sediments. Yeah. And so there were ceramics that were uh, that were heavily damaged by salts that also the salts will leach out of the ceramic yeah and they crystallize on the outside they crystallize on the outside yeah and it looks um they look frosted 
You know that project that you do when you're about eight years old where you grow rock crystals on strings suspended in a sugar solution? You can do that. That's how you make rock candy. Basically the same same idea. Yep. Yeah. And so you have that on the the outside. And so what we did was we had it in a little little bucket of water with a little bucket of distilled water and we put it in there and we would um, (laughs) test the the salinity. Uh Uh-huh. And just by licking it, I'm assuming. Nope, not at that point. Salty. No, no, that's no, not at that point. (laughs) Uh, That's what you do. Once it's out of the field, you can't lick it anymore. Uh, You can only lick things while they're still in the field. Okay. Um, And so you you check the salinity and you just keep swapping the water out and it leaches, it it pulls that salt out. Mm -hmm. And then when it gets to a point where the water, the salinity of the water isn't affected anymore then it's it's done it's a pot again yay donnie hamilton says to be frank there are no totally acceptable ways to treat waterlogged leather yeah so i sort of went through and chose different materials and uh excerpted what mr hamilton or possibly dr hamilton had to say about them and i just really loved what he said about leather and just like nope Uh, yeah, if you wanted if you wanted to treat that leather, you shouldn't have put it in the water to begin with. <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> and quite often, this is elsewhere. Uh, quite often, archaeological bone and ivory can only be cleaned, strengthened, and stabilized. Satisfactory restoration is often impossible. The conservation of waterlogged bone from underwater sites involves removing insoluble and soluble salts, removing stains, and consolidating the bone with synthetic resins. Yeah, so he's not too optimistic about this one either. Yeah. You Um, do your best. And so if you, gentle listener, are interested in more of the conservation and museum studies and of of underwater archaeology, we'll include this paper in the show notes for you, and the bibliography can point you towards even more sources. Yep. But for now, we're going to come sailing home with a fair wind at our backs to land safely upon the shore, our oars neatly stowed. And we hope you've enjoyed this episode. I can't believe it's taken us this long to get off land and into the water. But I can. uh, Well, some of us are. Remember that time that I almost didn't graduate because I refused to take the swim test until (laughs) like three weeks before graduation? No, you will graduate or you will die. (laughs) <laughs> that's what i said as i treaded water i guess it worked <laughs> oh you did great uh but there is plenty more material here for another day yeah and thanks for listening thank uh, you we'll be back in your ear soon with more new episodes and in the meantime you can check us out and follow us on the social medias mm-hmm. over on facebook we're the dirt podcast on twitter we're at dirt podcast and on instagram we are at the dirt pod and if that's a lot to remember, a lot of permutations of the Dirt Podcast for you to remember. Know, we, we tried to get them all the same, but we couldn't. No, some people got there first. But yep. you can head over to thedirtpod.com and find all of that there waiting for you. And if you'd like to support us, you can do that the best by telling folks about us and by leaving stars and reviews on Apple Podcasts to help new listeners find us. You can also sponsor an episode of your very own, or you can get access to lots of monthly bonus content by becoming a monthly donor on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. But please, we know times are weird. Please take care of yourselves first and foremost. And thank you so much for listening. We love you. Goodbye. Yarr. What do they say? How do they say bye in pirate?
Um, farewell. Oh. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.